Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This week on the show, censors, when is small, big enough? Google TV, should photographers care? And guest host Derek Story joins the fray. All that and more on episode number 150 of This Week in Photography. And welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, joining me are Steve Simon on the West Coast. Hey, Steve. Welcome back. Hi, everybody. Good to be back. Eating food as normal, and this is his feeding time. I'm I'm just, I have my special coffee now. Ah, uh, The food is gone. All right, good. Chewing noises, I promise. Also coming from Southern California, Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Good morning. I'm not eating, but I'm drinking. <laughs> I'm drinking as well. <laughs> Coffee. Nothing, uh, nothing crazy. Um, and um, we're lucky enough to get once again on the show. Mr. Derek Story of the Digital Story is back to uh, spread his, his knowledge upon us. Hey, Derek. That's right. Put pressure on me. Good morning. <laughs> I'm telling you, you you know, every now and then we get adult supervision. We have to actually act like we know what we're talking right. about because you'll That's call right. us on <laughs> So, so, Steve, cool. you're on the West Coast right now? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, did you say West Coast? Did uh, I say West or no, East? I'm on the East Coast unless... Uh, no, no. I'm just... Let me check. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Steve is all over the place. Always. All right, guys. This is, gonna, this is a big show. I've got lots of, lots of interesting things to talk about in the news today. Some of it uh, I know is going to ruffle ron brinkman's feathers because this is right up the alley it's actually story number one let's jump right in uh to story number one and this is about sony's new camera the next camera was a micro four-thirds camera and ron you and i or we all have had discussions about uh micro four-thirds or specifically talking about it in the context of are these smaller sensors good enough or will everybody be going to these gigantic full frame sensors in the future? So first off, I just want to, th- I, I know you probably read this already, um, but what, what do you think about the, the new Sony camera and is it good enough? The features look amazing. Yeah. So this is Sony's latest, uh, really a whole new market space in some ways. It's, uh, the, the NEX mirrorless, uh, interchangeable lens cameras. So it's, uh, uh, interchangeable lens camera, but without uh, you know a, a through the lens viewfinder, and uh, I think the thing that's there's a few things that's very unique about it, but primarily it is uh, a very good size sensor. It's actually APS-C or APS size sensor, so larger than the four thirds micro four thirds sensor yeah. uh, in a very small body, uh, really flat body. If you take the lens off of it, it's like a point and shoot, uh, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and then you know interchangeable lenses put on that, so it's uh, as is usually the case with Sony. Uh, I have this sort of love hate thing going on because they come up with some very interesting technology, and then they will sort of proprietorize it to the point where it's only Sony that you can get. So you, know, you look at this, and it's a new format. They they decided to not to go with an existing format like Micro Four Thirds. But to find their own format, which means that you buy this and you're buying into the whole Sony ecosystem. And you know that's worked for them in the past sometimes, like with uh, VHS, uh, you know, has, has not worked for them at some point in the past as well. Um, 
you know, the, the, I, I refused to buy Sony cameras at one point because you, you had to buy the memory stick technology for yeah. For so you know, it's it's the same kind of deal. I can understand that if they really felt they needed to get the larger sensor, they uh, they had to go with you know the non-standard, you know, larger than the micro four thirds. But on the other hand, it really just kind of grinds me to think, uh, you know, you're you're in this closed Sony ecosystem, and I don't know if they've opened it up to where you know Sigma or somebody will be able to provide lenses for this format or not uh so that's kind of my biggest question about it but specs wise nice big sensor and you know they're putting decent glass in front of it so i'd like to get my hands on one of these definitely yeah derek have you looked at this thing yet um i'm going to be writing a a review on it here pretty soon Uh, i agree with a lot that ron's saying um you know the the larger sensor i think they're doing for sort of a a, a, you know to, to one up panasonic and olympus to say you know I, you know, we go through these phases in photography, you know, megapixels, more megapixels. And now, you know, larger sensor, I think, is, uh, you know, is one of those phases that we're in right now. Uh, I haven't actually had a chance to, to compare it to Micro Four Thirds cameras. So, you know, there's a lot more, just like with megapixels, there's a lot more than just the sensor, uh, you know, to the final picture quality. So I'm looking forward to, to checking that out. It, it's funny what he says, you know, when I look at the camera... It looks like the lens is almost like wearing, you know, this little thing at the end of it. It's wagging the dog. It, it's, right? it's really out of uh, proportion. You know, it's it's really kind of an odd looking creature. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I was just gonna chime in and say, you know, that that's a good point. I mean, if I could take my Nikon system and put it in the dryer and it came out a little bit smaller, a little bit lighter, I'd probably be happy. I'd be very happy, actually. But you know, when does you know, when does, you know, small become too small? And I think for serious photographers, for professional photographers, you know, when you, as Derek mentioned, when you see the, the new Sony with a larger lens on it, it seems rather kind of awkward. And um, so I'm, I'm all for the idea. When the Sigma DP1 came out, we were all kind of looking for a camera. That was the promised land, you know, a smaller package with a big sensor that would give you the resolution that we're used to in our bigger DSLRs. Mm-hmm. So I, I think ultimately, you know, as far as serious picture-taking machines uh, are concerned, you know, there's going to be sort of a happy medium. Smaller isn't always necessarily uh, a better way to go because you still have to kind of figure this thing out in your hands and, and use it. So, yeah. Uh, but it's I'm I'm happy to see it. Go ahead, Ron. Well, for me, uh, as somebody who mostly does photography when I'm traveling. Uh, this is really exciting. You know, I, I love the concept of it, at least, uh, in the sense that I, I don't really like to lug around a whole lot of big camera gear when I'm traveling, especially if I'm doing, you know, sort of hard, you know, third world country traveling or backpacking or that kind of thing. So conceptually, I, you know, I just love the idea. And I hope everybody sort of starts doing this kind of thing. I just wish that Sony had come out and said, not just we're making this camera, but we are making an open system all right, everybody start making lenses for it. All right, everybody make a competing back for it in the same way that Micro Four Thirds did. I was I was really, you know, I thought the Micro Four Thirds coalition did a lot of things right by opening it up that way, and I think they've built a nice little ecosystem around it, uh, and I kind of wish that this this had gone that same route. But having said that, you know, if, bottom line is if it really fits the needs and I start seeing good reviews on the quality of the sensor, the quality of the lenses and everything, I would absolutely consider one of these. Yeah, I mean, I, where where yeah, what you said earlier, Ron, hit home because I remember back in the early days when 
when when the MP3 player wars were were raging strong, and Sony came out with their player that was proprietary and played this A track format and used, I think it used memory stick. So you you buy into the Sony thing, which was a nice walled garden, but you were stuck. You're sort of stuck in there. Um, but look, looking at this camera, and I agree with you guys totally. This is the Sony NEX dash five um, with with an APS dash C size sensor. Just you know, if you want to Google it, but it. Uh, this one, it's yeah. It looks like there's a the the camera itself is an attachment for the lens, so it's that kind of that kind of proportions in terms of the body. But but looking at the features of this thing, um, it, it has me thinking. Well, you know, if I'm just buying this as a whole, completely different system from my digital SLR world, um, and I'm okay with that, then you know, kind of why not? You know, because it's like you know, I have the G the you know the Canon G9 still. I have still haven't upgraded that. But I still have that one, and it's you know relatively closed. It's just a, you know it's just a box that it it does what it does. But you know I was thinking in terms of the features inside of the camera, like this thing does. Um, it has a, a feature where it will it, it'll basically do HDR HDR within the camera. You know, so those kind of advances, like Sony's pressing, pressing, pressing on doing those kind of things. But then you know they sort of right before the finish line, they make it proprietary so that you're like. You know, you hear the wah, 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 wah. <laughs> exactly. It's so, it's so frustrating to me. But, you know, I, I, I totally agree that if, if bottom line is if there's enough sort of spec-worthy stuff in there and the, and the images it produces are good and it's, a, yeah, yeah, I would consider it. I mean, I, first time I saw it, I said, boy, that's a really ugly camera. I agree, mm-hmm. with, that. I agree with everybody saying that. I just wanted to draw the analogy to, you know, the idea of kind of a technically beautiful and perfect photograph Versus one that, you know, it might be technically perfect yet extremely boring, and one could be very imperfect and and very interesting and evocative and interesting. And I think too, when it comes to cameras, because the competition is is fierce, we're seeing all this new technology arrive at our doorstep. And on paper, you know, we can talk about it, but ultimately, I, I think back to the days when I was a kid and I got my first job working behind the counter selling cameras. And and it's true, you need to sort of hold it in your hands. Feel if it works for you, because the more the camera becomes an extension of you and you can sort of let the technical fade to the background, the better work you're, you're going to get. So depending, you know, Derek's a, a big guy. He's like, what are you, seven, nine or something, Derek? You're a big, tall man. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I grew if, another if, foot last week. <laughs> it was really something to tell you. You know, you know, some of the small cameras just aren't necessarily um, photographic friendly in terms of the reality, even though on paper they're, they're fantastic. So, you know, I think uh, for the listenership out there, you know, it, this is a great time to be a photographer, no better time. And, and we have such a selection, but sometimes it might even be better to have a camera on paper that is not as technically um, uh, strong, yet one that you could really feel more comfortable with and will end up working faster and, and getting better pictures. Yeah, yeah. Dumb, dumb cameras force us to be smarter photographers, right? Fred, I just wanted to just one one more thing on this. I think you know it's not just the Sony camera itself. It's it's this uh, category that's you know being defined, and we're, and we're not sure yet what people are going to think about this. And it's really the you know an in between category, in between compact cameras and full DSLRs, and you know the. The Panasonics, the Olympus, the Sony, we're going to see more cameras. I'm sure we're going to see something from Canon uh, before too long. And, you know, I, I just sort of wonder, you know, 
you know, sometimes I'm either in a compact camera mode, which means I want to go really small, or I'm in a 5D Mark II mode with a 70 to 200 to 8. You know, and, and there, and so this is sort of in between. And what I'm curious about to see is how many people want to live in this in-between space because it's not cheap. You know, you start adding the lenses and everything. This is, it's not like, you know, you're getting all this for a few hundred bucks. You're going to spend the same amount as you would for entry-level DSLR. So yeah. I think the category itself uh, is, is a very interesting one. And I think in the end, how Sony, how Panasonic, how Olympus do will be determined by, you know, do people like this category or is it going to be, you know, what, is it going to be like APS or it, um, it was uh, around for a while and then gone. Well, what about you, Derek? Because you're, you're right. There's starting from the top down, there's the digital SLR world where you have your big body with, with your crazy lenses and then all this expense and the speed lights and all this stuff. And then <clears throat> down from that, presumably, is this guy. Then down from that is your point-and-shoot camera. And then down from that is IS your cell phone. is <laughs> what's down from that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then at the bottom of it, I guess, is what you carry around all the time. That's the camera that's in your phone. So what, how does this fit into into your world, Eric? Does, or does this, this Sony camera fit in? Would you find a place for it, or is it just another camera that we, you would add, you'd play with it, and then put it up and go back to your real photography? You know, the thing about it is it still doesn't fit in your front pocket. You know, my S90 does, right? Yeah. And so, you know, right away, if it doesn't fit in my pocket, then, then, it's, then it's suddenly becomes some sort of bag camera. And then you start thinking, well, if I'm carrying a bag anyway, right? You know, the Rebel is that much bigger, the T2i right. or whatever. So, uh, you know, for me, it's a little problematic. I, I tend to like, and, and I change on this, right? Uh, I mean, I, I have an Olympus EPL-1, and I absolutely love it. I just think it's a fantastic camera, especially with a 17-millimeter F2.8 on it. But yeah, I'll tell you, a lot of times it's the S90, just like in my pocket going out the door, or I want that luxurious experience of uh, of a full DSLR with you know beautiful glass. So for me it's it's a little problematic. Once it doesn't fit in my pocket anymore, it's it's competing with my DSLR, my real so, DSLR. Ron Brinkman, what's what's your what does this fit into your world or what's what's your your ideal sort of um uh ensemble of camera gear, you know, if you could have just the the bodies that you need and you'd be done, what would it be and would this thing be in it? Yeah, it might. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, you know, anytime you're you're making these compromises, and that's what photography is all about, you're kind of weighing image quality versus uh, things like weight uh, and cost, of course. So, I, yeah, I could definitely see a scenario where I decide I'm going to go travel for several weeks, and I just don't want to carry around not just, you know, a larger camera, but lar- the larger lenses that go with that. And if I could get uh, a camera body and you know three lenses, uh, three good lenses that cover a nice range and also have a very fast uh, prime in there or something. Um, yeah, I could see this fitting into into my my world because you know the net net everything is smaller, so it would be a significant weight and, and size savings to have something like this relative to even you know my even even like the the small Rebel Canon. You still got the decent sized lenses that go with it. Yeah. Well, I guess it, it all comes down to, to cost, too, and, and where you are in your, your sort of photographic journey. Because if you're like us and you already have your, the gear that you're going to be using, then it probably makes less sense to, to add another sort of matrix of gear that you need to keep up with and the updates and new camera bodies and all this stuff. So something else to lust after. But if you're a new photographer jumping in, I think 
getting a kit like this might make a lot of sense rather than going for a full fledged giant DSLR. What do you what do you think, Steve Simon? Uh, yeah, I mean that that makes perfect sense uh, to me. Uh, like Ron said, Fatarvi is a compromise. Uh, I remember back in the day when um, you know I was a full fledged SLR shooter using the Nikon system, and I saw the Leica photographers out with their uh, small little kits. You know, the lenses were you know amazing, and and you know the 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 images that they were able to get were amazing. And I tried it myself, and in the end, I just wasn't, it wasn't working for me. Um, I, I really wanted it to, but it wasn't. I had grown up with an, uh, an SLR experience, and I was just missing too many pictures, and I guess I just didn't commit to it the time that was necessary to make that full transition. So in the end, uh, my compromise is, especially shooting professionally, I need to know that the equipment's going to be able to give me the kind of images that I know I'm going to need and sometimes the compromise is the bigger system. Uh, someone getting into it today, uh, you know, I think it's a great idea to maybe start small, utilize it to its capacity. When you feel that you've reached some sort of a limit, that that little system is not allowing you to 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 shoot in certain ways, then it's time to consider uh, more flexibility with a bigger a bigger uh, SLR kit. But I do think that people should, generally speaking, stick with one kind of uh, kit for sort of the majority of their shooting because, you know, the, the, the more your eye is in that, at that viewfinder, the more chance you're going to have to get better images. And the more comfortable you are with the equipment you're using, um, the better you're going to get uh, at using it. So, I, you know, I, I, w- I would like to point out, too, just uh, because we're sort of talking a lot about the form factor here, but Sony really is doing some interesting stuff with the image processing side of things, you know, the in-camera image processing. Uh, you mentioned it, Frederick, that there's sort of an HDR mode in here that will take uh, a short burst and, and do some smart uh, HDR generation in there. And, and the technology that seems to be really interesting is they, they have the ability to sort of consolidate these images, even if they're handheld, so it's doing some sort of registration in-camera to kind of line them up. Uh, it's it's also got, and I haven't tried this, but I hear it works fairly well, what they call a twilight mode, and this is on some of their small point-and-shoots, too, where it does the same kind of thing. It'll fire off a few a few shots, you know, rapid succession, uh, and then go back and analyze them and kind of put them together and help to remove some of the grain you would normally get in low light by kind of doing this averaging and, and throwing away the noisy pixels kind of thing, so... You know, it's that that's a whole other conversation we could have, which is where this technology is going to go, uh, you know, in terms of just post-processing in camera. Yeah, and I think Ron, that's huge. The other thing I just noticed with that camera was it also has some sort of a panoramic mode where you yeah. can kind of you know, move Sweet. the camera around, stitch it together. And that is, is awesome. I, I haven't used it myself, but I've heard that it's really good. And it's, it's crazy fun good. to have that option. In yeah. camera, yeah, it works great. You don't have you don't even have to stitch it. It just it just does it, uh, wow. like Ron was saying. Just processes there, Do you have it. this? You have this camera in your hands? I don't have it in my hands right now. Um, I had it in my hands, and then I will have it back in my hands later today. You know <laughs> no, how, these, uh, awesome. how these things work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you'll have to come on in the next couple of weeks or so and, and do a show and tell. I'd love to yeah, see. It'll, some, it'll I love this I don't know how long I get to keep it this time, but uh, yeah, yeah, I'll have it back today for the writing the review. Okay, and when when will that review go up? That's going to go up on the digital story. No, that'll go up on MacWorld. On, okay, uh, writing it for MacWorld, and then after MacWorld, then I'll put it on digital story. 
Uh, don't want to, don't want to scare the people that are paying me. Sure, sure. Okay, so just a, a quick tangent on that. Um, two questions. Um, the the first one, uh, and I'll I'll direct it to you first, Derek. Is um, you know, with like like we were talking about earlier, with is the war for sensor size and um, you know all these other sort of optical features of these cameras is are we done with that and now we're going to move more into the in-camera pixel processing stage are we are we getting to that point because it seems like sony has decided to you know let's let's innovate on what the camera can do inside rather than than outside well olympus has been working on that too uh with their art filters and they do a lot of nice in-camera stuff and for example their jpegs the processing for olympus jpegs in a lot of ways, you know, rival the raw images. So, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the manufacturers are foci- focusing on this, and I think it just all becomes part of the overall recipe. So the the hardware and the secret sauce all work together, and in the end, and you know, I know S- Steve feels this way because we've talked about this before. The picture that you end up with, the picture that you look at on paper or however you look at it. Uh, is you know really the determining factor, and they're all going to be a little bit different, and it's it's exciting. I think the thing that I would say, and uh, when people ask me about this, is, is don't get all caught up in any one of these uh, you know specifications, you know sensor size or or whatever it happens to be, you know just sort of try to look at the the totality of what each camera is doing and what it can produce, and go from there because. Believe me, they're all going to be good. I mean, it's very fierce right now, and you know we're benefiting. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is definitely fierce. Technology in general, it just seems like everything's heating up, um, and it's it's exciting to watch. On so, Steve, uh, I'll throw it over to you um, with this piece of that that question. Um, if these cameras start doing all these internal processing and magic before you even see the final image on the LCD, does that mean the cameras that have these advanced features are off-limits to photojournalists like yourself? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I, I think everything is always changing. I mean, when you look back, at least in photojournalism, the way f- photographers used to work and the equipment they used from those 4 by 5 Graflexes, which I have one somewhere, mm-hmm. not in front of me, uh, to the you know film and then digital you know, there's certain ethical considerations, and even that has changed over the years. There wasn't that long ago when photographers uh, um, were okay with setting up certain situations, and then, uh, of course, in, in recent decades, that, that is no longer acceptable to digital manipulation. So uh, I think it's going to be sort of a feature-by-feature thing. I think the biggest um, uh, factor, or the biggest, most important factor in your question, Frederick, is the disclosure. So if if you're going to present something uh, to a readership uh, by publishing something uh, in a in a news context, if it if it, if there is some sort of special effect or some sort of special feature that was used, I think it needs to be explained because otherwise um, it looks as though uh, you know people will still accept it as as a, a version of reality, uh, even though they know you know that it, you know in the digital camera world how that works. I don't think necessarily you know, in a panoramic image. I mean, it's, it's a fuzzy thing, but it never hurts to disclose. People don't want to clutter their page with a, a little asterisk and disclosure. But <laughs> I think in the journalism world, if you do that, at least it, it sort of uh, alleviates the pressure and the potential for getting in trouble. 
Yeah, I remember I remember um a while back there was this contest, this photo contest. I can't remember exactly what it was for or who was running it. But the impetus was or the, the, the point was they had a uh, a clause in there that there was to be no digital manipulation of the images. Yeah. So what I wonder is with cameras like this you know, are they going to have to start a matrix of cameras that aren't allowed because because they do digital manipulation inside the camera? Because presumably you could take a picture of, you know, some scene and pump out an HDR without ever touching it with Photoshop. Right. You know, it's the integrity of the photographer to be able to sort of, you know, uh, interpret that contest and know what the right thing is. We all know what the right thing is. If it says no digital manipulation and you're not sure, you should ask. Uh, a lot of times people that have done that without disclosing have gotten caught. And in journalism and photojournalism, you can't really recover from it. It's just almost impossible to. So. Yeah, but, but Frederick's right. It, well, I mean, Frederick's right, though, is that there is, there's a, you're getting to the point where everything is going to be digitally manipulated at some point, right? I mean, if, yeah. it, once, you're, once you're always shooting HDR, then you're going to have to make some decisions about how that's processed, tone mapped, uh, you know, what, what is considered in the scene and out of the scene in terms of the highlights and the shadows. Uh, you know, there's a, a photo of the volcano from a few weeks back that was heavily processed uh, to make it a very dramatic clouds. And I think you even, you even Twittered this, uh, Steve. Uh, you know, a lot of drama showed up in the clouds because they'd taken a fairly flat image and increased the contrast and that sort of thing. And, you know, there there is no yes or no to a lot of these questions of is it processed or not because everything you're doing is making decisions. I mean, JPEGs are making a decision about what comes off the sensor and how that gets mapped into an image that looks uh, somewhat realistic to the human eye. But even that is almost always bumping up saturation, yeah. bumping up sharp, sharpness. Journalism is so. always a judgment call. So, for example, you know, when you go to a, a scene and if you over-dramatize that scene... Um, that then you're not necessarily giving your viewer accurate information. So a lot is in the ball of the photographer, the photojournalist, to sort of be honest with the depiction of what's happening. And if you're going to over-dramatize the volcano image, I mean, it's, it, it's dramatic enough, but if you want to make it more of an art piece, you're right, it's, 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 it's a criteria. There has to be sort of boundaries there. I think within the industry, there's an accepted standard of when you go over the line, and it's always going to be a little bit gray, um, but the criteria will change as the, te- as the technology changes, but there always will be a fence, I think, um, in terms of uh, traditional journalism, whatever that is, uh, going so Derek, forward. So, Derek's story, where, where do you fall on that? Is, the, can, get this, is this camera off limits to people that are trying to represent reality? I don't think, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I always see this as a huge opportunity. Uh, people ask me as a photographer, well, you know, are you bummed out that you can take such good pictures now without really knowing anything about photography? And <laughs> <laughs> and I go, no, not at all, because there's so much more to it. Let's say that uh, all these cameras are processing these images, and they're going to have a certain sort of look. And we're not even talking about composition right now, right, which is right away a place to distinguish yourself. Yeah. But uh, so then there's a huge opportunity for you. This photographer to say, okay, I'm going to not use that. I'm not going to disable that, and I'm going to do something else. And boom, suddenly your shots look different than you know 90% of what you're seeing online. It, it, it's a great, you know, it, it's endless, and it will. This will be fun forever. And uh, I, I like seeing what uh, these manufacturers are doing with these cameras. I think it's a lot of fun, and I'm not tied to it, so I can use it when I want to use it, and when I don't want to use it, it's great. In terms of reporting. Uh, 
uh, for instance, on my site on Digital Story, we just always say what we what we took the picture with, whether it's reader submitted or mine. Just put it out there, and that way people know, and then you know, then we go from there. Yeah. Do you uh, back to you, Derek? Do you, do you think uh, that camera phones, um, because they're increasing in megapixel count and quality, and and the lens quality and all that stuff, it's it's increasing with each successive release. When do you think we'll get to a point where you think? you'd be able to just eliminate all these in-between cameras and just take either your cell phone or, you know, your, your digital SLR? Oh, well, you know, first of all, I, I really don't see my digital SLR going away because just the things that I can do with that, you know, when you put a 50-millimeter F1.4 lens on there, that is different than anything else I can get, uh, you know, with any other camera. So, I mean, these... These are our paintbrushes, right? And mm-hmm. uh, the combination of camera and lens uh, all give us all these different looks. So I love it that camera phones are getting more powerful. That means when I, if I take a shot with it, that I might be able to make a little bigger print or crop a little bit more. I think that's fantastic. But it's not an either-or thing. It's just like everything is just kind of getting cooler. And uh, yeah. that, that's the way I see it. I, I just wanted to add that I think that um, camera manufacturers are a little bit nervous because, you know, as, as uh, cameras get better and better in, these, um, in cell phones, in these amazing cell phones, the idea of having one device that does it all, maybe not for more serious photographers, but certainly for maybe a vast majority of people who have a high-resolution camera in their phone that's fast enough and records video and does everything that maybe the little camera they also keep with them does, I can see people not bothering to to buy a separate camera. I also see, you know, you adopt sort of one sort of way of shooting. And if it's this new Sony-type system or the four-thirds or DSLRs, I agree with Derek, they're they're not going to go away just for serious and professional photographers. Um, They have things in them that, that, you know, no other cameras will will allow them or no other systems will allow. But I see, you know, who knows, five, ten years down the line, the idea of incorporating everything in one device I think is a very attractive thing for a lot of people and i think a lot of people are starting to just use their their phones as their primary source of uh, camera taking yeah i mean i know like for me um i i I used to carry my my g9 around a lot because i'd want to do videos with it or um take just because it's a bigger sensor right so take really good pictures with it but the trade-off for me at least has been with my with the camera that's in my iphone for example i i can take a picture that's good enough, but then I can manipulate it on the device and I can share it out from the device. So those two other pieces are way beyond what I could do with my, with my point and shoot, which means I, you know, I'm going to leave that at home if I'm going out. Cause I can take a photo of something that I saw and Twitter it out right there. Whereas, you know, with a regular camera, I can't do that. So those two connectivity pieces and processing pieces, I think, um, you know, weigh in on in not only mine, but a lot of folks decision on which camera to grab when you walk out of the house. Now, Ron Brinkman, is that is that your case, or you uh, do you do you shoot and then you bring it back and process? Depends. Yeah, I, I I don't see the one thing I can I can predict with absolute certainty is that there will be more cameras available in our life uh, from a variety of different places. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to have a single source camera. I think you're right that you know your your phone is going to be probably a primary device for shooting. But you know, it's just like when. DVD players first came out or whatever. Pick any technology. You know, the, the first pass of that is a really expensive, uh, high-end thing from some 
name brand place, like in, in the case of DV players, you know, the Sonys and the Panasonics. And yep. uh, eventually, as that technology gets so cheap to manufacture, it comes downstream and you can buy really cheap versions of it or, you know, really small versions or it's, in this case, bundled for free and with a phone. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you know, these high-end manufacturers that make high-end DVD players aren't still able to sell sort of a premium product. And I think you'll still see that. You know, the market size may be different, but you're always going to have people producing premium stuff for premium users. Uh, it's just that you know, cameras are just going to be so ubiquitous, and you know, you'll have them embedded in your in your glasses or in your hat or your wear a lapel pin or you know anything because <laughs> it's just going to be everywhere. And for that matter, you know, there's going to be so many cameras in public places. You'll probably just be able to tap into those and say, "Oh, I want to take a picture of that. Let me find the." the nearest uh, security camera or somebody else's camera that's, you know, web-enabled and just use that. So yeah. I think you're going to see cameras everywhere. Well, it's an it's a, it's a interesting future that we have coming, but it's all good. I mean, it's, uh, you know, for photographers, wanna, it's just different ways. Phone. A shoe phone. <laughs> I think they have those in Japan. They may be illegal <laughs> to take on the trains, though. <laughs> yeah. Why do you want a shoe phone, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm okay. Now I'm in trouble. I, I'm no, sure I'm Steve was re- in, in Steve's defense, I'm sure he's referring to the Maxwell Smart type of device, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Steve Simon photos live from the, the <laughs> Japanese train system. I don't want to see that, Steve. <laughs> um, all right, guys, let's move on to this next story. We talked about Adobe um, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, um, but the they uh, released a, a new feature of Camera Raw, which allows photographers to profile their lenses to uh, compensate for distortion and other artifacts that happen with particular lenses. So you could create a profile for a specific lens and apply it later in post-processing to correct for things like distortion, vignetting, and that sort of thing. So DxO uh, Labs is a company that had that technology or that was doing that and sort of built part of their business around that. Um, so they, they called or they, uh, they basically said, and this is coming from DP Review, that uh, they had concerns about the accuracy um, uh, in Adobe's technique for measuring and correcting against uh, those kind of, uh, I guess, uh, errors in, in image rendering. So, Derek, throwing it to you, because I'm, I'm sure you probably played with this feature a little bit more than most of us. What do you think about that? I mean, you probably haven't played with DxO's software, but have you looked at Adobe's piece and how does that work? Yeah, I, I've, I've looked at them both. Uh, I, I think it's interesting. I, I think uh, actually both Adobe and DxO have good points. Uh, I think what Adobe's position is on this, that they want to open this up so that more people can use it and, uh, you know, kind of put control in the photographer's hands. And DxO, uh, you know, they have a really good system. And from what I can tell, it's a very accurate system. So then you sort of get into the situation, well, how good do you need? And, uh, you know, we see that in color management. You know, how accurate does your color management have to be? We see it in GPS. How you know how accurate the uh, you know do your points have to be? Uh, you know when you when you take a GPS reading when you're out shooting, and I think this sort of falls into that category, at least for me on on my look at it. I think uh, for a lot of photographers, the Adobe system, and I think really what DxO is talking about is allowing photographers to to create their own profiles. I think that's I think that was sort of the focus of it. You know, I think for a lot of photographers, if you're not, it's like color management. If you're not doing any color management at all and you do kind of like the, the low end, you've, you've improved your workflow and this might fall into that category too. 
uh, with the Adobe system where maybe, you know, photographers uh, have a little less vignetting, a little less distortion in their shots than they did before, if that's what they want. Do you think, Derek, do you think the advanced amateur and amateur photographers should be paying attention to these technologies or just is it more noise that they, you know, that's going to clutter up them learning stuff like composition exposure and all that stuff? Well, I, I think it depends. If you have a lens, for example, that tends to vignette a lot on you, maybe you know, j- maybe you like to have a protection filter, and just putting that filter, you know, this is on a wide-angle lens mainly, putting mm-hmm. that filter on there causes just a little bit of vignetting in the corners, then I think that's a real practical situation where this would be useful. Uh, do I think that photographers, most photographers, need to profile every lens they have? Uh, you know... I think that's that's up to the photographer. I I don't, but you know maybe some photographers really want that profile for every lens that they shoot with. So I, yeah. I think it kind of depends on you know your your gig, but definitely vignetting. This could be very helpful for vignetting. Ron Brinkman, do, where do you fall on that? Should photographers be be um, profiling their lenses or at least understanding this technology, or do they do they focus on other things? Yeah, I mean you know you can obviously go down a path of being extraordinarily anal retentive about getting everything totally perfect. I think for most photographers, uh, like 99.999% of the photographers, this doing profiles on your own lens is probably just a, a waste of time. And there's going to be good profiles out there. I mean, un- unless you're working with a very obscure lens or unless the quality control on these lenses is so far, <laughs> so much worse than I think it is, you know, it seems like the the default profiles that you get from from Adobe are, are going to be extremely good and very accurate to what you need. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I can understand why Adobe did it because it's probably going to help them build out a library of more obscure lenses that they have corrections for. Mm-hmm. But for most, yeah. for the most part, you know, we're all shooting with the same set of, you know, you can probably find a hundred lenses in the world that cover again, 99.99% of the lenses that people use. And uh, I'm sure they do a very good job of it. I mean, DxO Labs is, is correct in that probably uh, they're going to produce much better profiles. But if you get close enough, like Derek st- said, I think it's uh, it's going to be just fine. It's gonna it's not the thing you should be spending time on relative to taking more pictures. Yeah. Now, Steve, do you St- Steve Simon? Do you do you turn down jobs because you're busy profiling your lenses, or do you? <laughs> All the time. If I wasn't profiling lenses, uh, you know, I'd probably build an arc or something. I don't know. No, I, I think the technology is quite, quite amazing uh, that we're, we're seeing with this stuff. But, you know, as a photographer, and I think it's good advice generally to try and um, perfect or, or better some of your skills in the field so that you can have to worry less about spending time in the computer and 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 when I'm out in the field, even with whatever lens I have, if it's on the wide side and I tend to shoot wide, I always try and stay as perpendicular as I can. And I'm I'm very careful to to minimize distortion whenever I can. And usually I'm happy to live with the results without having to, especially as a documentary or, or photojournalism type person, where you don't want to be altering pixels in a way. I'm just not comfortable with it. You know, if you've got a fisheye lens and you want to straighten out, you know, that's a whole other deal, a whole other scenario but um it is amazing this stuff is only going to get better we're only going to see more of it it's an option but i think uh i think it's best to as as ron mentioned to uh, spend your time in the field perfect your skills and you you won't have to spend it you won't have to turn jobs down like i do while you're profiling your lenses <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, listeners, if you want to check out the Adobe technology, head over to adobe.com um, and look at the Photoshop and Camera Raw uh, literature they have up there, and it, it sort of details what they're doing. And on the DxO side, if you want to look at what they're doing and why they say it's better, head over to dxo.com. And you'll see, uh, you'll, I think they even have a trial version available that you can download and play with. So be sure to check that out. All right. Uh, this other story is really interesting. So let me, let me just read this, this excerpt from the, uh, from the press release. And this is about Google TV. It says, Google TV combines the familiar TV, familiar TV with the freedom and power of the web. You can access all your favorite websites and move between the television and the web. With the entire internet in your living room, your TV becomes a photo slideshow viewer, a gaming console, a music player, and much more. And the Sony internet TV is scheduled to launch first in the U.S. in the fall with a standalone uh, unit coming uh, shortly sooner or shortly thereafter. So the question I, I'll throw out to you guys, Steve, we'll start with you this time. Um, Google TV, does this mean that this is another format that photographers are going to have to think about? Because right now it's like, okay, uh, I need my website to work on an iPhone. I need to work <laughs> on an iPad. I need to work on Android, uh, Flash or no Flash, no. Uh, and now Google TV. Uh, is this another thing or is this, is this good for us? Uh, I, you know, I'm not really sure. I don't think I'm really necessarily qualified to answer that. I think ultimately there will be simple answers so that when you create something, it can automatically adjust to the variety of browsers and platforms that are out there. I think that's something that I would like, but I look at this and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I can get my mom on email for the first time (laughs) if it's connected to her TV. It's been very frustrating. You know, she's not really that old and she should be able to, uh, it's been frustrating not to have to be able to uh, communicate uh, with her electronically. Not that I don't, you know, I do answer her calls when she phones, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking more on, on, in those lines. So maybe you guys could chime in on this. Ron, what do you think? Well, I, I think, you know, hopefully, I, and I didn't really look into great detail on this announcement, but hopefully this is just a matter of it's another method for getting content that's already on the web uh, in front of people that don't have other technology for doing that. Uh, you know, i.e., just displaying it on your television. So, if they do it right, and I suspect that's the kind of thing that's going to evolve out of this, this is just going to be an easier way to display some other uh, method. You know, you've already put the, the the images online using some some method, and this will just be another way to get it to a TV. Yeah, Derek Story, are you uh, you rushing to put all your images and getting them ready and formatted for Google TV? Um, I'm going to hold off on that and build an arc. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's it, it's uh, it's fine. I, I think for me, a lot of this sort of stuff comes down to the user interface and you know how easy will it really be to use, and will Steve's mom actually you know will it resonate with her, or will it be like more difficult than uh, getting an iPad or something and, and checking her mail that way? So I think, you know, if the user interface is great, uh, I think it, it has legs. I have to say, it's funny, I, I have uh, an Apple TV uh, that I bought, you know, way back that I think is cool and I like it, but and to be honest with you, I, I don't really use it that much. And um, something, and, and you know, I'm not saying that is better or worse than, than Google TV, but uh, in, in that category for me uh, probably wouldn't be something that I would, would use a whole lot or care about that much. 
Yeah, I probably I, I use my Apple TV a, a good amount. I'm, I use it to rent movies from now now and again, um, the ones that I don't get from Netflix. But uh, on the photo side of it, um, when it first came out, I configured everything to sort of pull in uh, my Flickr library. And then I got sick of looking at my own shots. So I pointed it at some favorite photographer <laughs> streams. So I get fresh stuff from them all the time, which is really cool. You know, I just see what people yeah. are, are pumping out all the time. But I, I tend to not even look at those unless Apple TV is on and it's switched over to that yeah. input. And it goes idle and it's, it's showing the slideshow, you know, or the, that's what the, happens to me, too. Yeah. yeah, so that's the only time I get to see photos on Apple TV is when I, oh, I forgot to turn my TV off, <laughs> you know, yeah. kind of thing. So, I mean, I think it's great, but, you know, in terms of a primary distribution mechanism for photographers, I don't know that just the television in and of itself as a delivery mode is what I'd be going to. Because when I'm sitting in front of the TV, it's purpose. You know, it's I'm, I'm, I, I want to watch this episode that TiVo caught and then I'm gone kind of thing. So yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of a, you know, like Lakers, Phoenix sort of TV guy. And the rest of the time I'm, you know, on the iPad or computer or something. Yeah. Yeah. Ron Brinkman, what about you? Do you, uh, are you in the Apple TV world and are you going to get a Google TV or how does that work for you? I, I don't, I don't have an Apple TV. I don't have cable. I don't, <laughs> all of my media these you, days. I is, see the books behind you. That's where your brain is, right? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of books. But I mean, I'll, you know, if I watch a movie, I just Netflix it. Uh, generally, or download it, uh, you know, onto my onto my laptop and watch it there. So I'm not the right one to ask about some of this stuff. Gotcha. So you don't you don't you own a TV though, right? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. You... No, I've, I've got a TV, and it's you know it's not a bad one. It's you know it's got it, a radio. It... <laughs> yes, the Short shadow way. knows, right? <laughs> for some uh, good stuff, man. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I do. I just uh, I, you know, for me, the 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 breakthrough I want in television is something that's extremely, you know, that, that is the 52 inch kind of television that uh, has enough resolution that I can use it as a monitor as well. So sitting on my couch and still doing full on regular web surfing. And, you know, right now, even an HD TV is kind of not quite enough resolution for that. So that's more what I'm looking for. Yeah. Well, you were born a few years too early, my friend. So <laughs> I'm sure it's coming soon enough. Yeah. All right, guys, let's let's jump into listener questions uh, real quick. And this first question from Cedric Bullock, I'm going to throw over to Steve Simon, the Nikon guy. Steve, you want to take this one? Uh, sure. Um, Cedric says that I've been having trouble setting my Nikon, uh, Nikon D300S to capture clear images of the kids during sports games and bright light. And he uses a 7200 uh, 2.8 beautiful lens, VR lens. And he often gets blurred images or out-of-focus shots. I want to... I also want to capture the ball via tennis, soccer, and baseball in the frame as it is being struck. More often than not, the child is clear, but the ball is not. Any suggestions? Well, um, yeah, again, uh, talking about compromise, sometimes because we're dealing with sports where you want to um, capture your kids uh, frozen and sharp, as well as um, you may not get the depth of field you need to keep the ball sharp. But I would argue, Cedric, that having the ball sharp is not necessarily going to make or break the photo. If the kid's expressions are clear and the ball is in the frame, chances are it's a pretty strong and good shot. Um, as far as the blur problem, I don't know what autofocus modes you were setting at, but I do have some suggestions being a Nikon guy and, and having a similar autofocus system in my uh, D3, uh, D3S camera as, as you have in your D300S, and that is to keep it on continuous mode 
um, which will track your moving subjects. I would um, set it to dynamic area 21 points or 9 points. Uh, the Nikon system has three choices, 51, 21, or 9. You might, your, your conventional instinct might say, well, if I have 51 points, I'm, I'm sure to get it in focus. But actually, because it's 51 points, it takes longer for the sensor to sort of scan around those 51 points. So if you set it to 21, which is generally the sweet spot in terms of action photography, uh, generally speaking, that a lot of photographers I know that are Nikon shooters will use. But nine points will also work well. And the other um, uh, area that I would look at is the focus tracking lock-on. Because if you're looking for uh, getting your kid in focus, I would set it to long. And what that means, Cedric, when you set it to long is that if someone runs in front of the field of view where your kid is, the Nikon uh, uh, system will not necessarily immediately try and find the focus of, of the kid that ran in front between uh, your kid and uh, you, but will maintain the focus on your kid, which means that you'll have more in-focus uh, pictures. So I suspect you don't have some of these settings. If you do this and get back to us and let us know if that helps. Awesome. Great answer, Steve. Thank you for that. All right. Uh, next question goes over to Derek Story. It's from Paul Pryor. Derek, you want to take this one? Oh, sure. So uh, Paul asks, I'm relatively new to the legal side of photography and have taken some hot rod car show photos, which I would like to sell. If it is a public show and I ask the car owner if I can take a photo and he agrees, can I later sell the photo? <laughs> So <laughs> the key word here is sell. Uh, in the world of photography, everything changes the moment that you start to try to sell photos. In terms of um, publishing photos, sharing photos, that's all kind of you know in one category when you're in a, a public setting, uh, a much more lax category. The minute that you start to get money for photos, then I think things tighten up a little bit. And as I always have to say, I'm not a lawyer, and uh, so I can't dispense legal advice at all. But I would say that uh, selling photos uh, changes things a lot, and um, that if it were me personally, the way that I would handle that is that I would actually get some sort of a, a release or agreement from uh, you know the, the people that own this property before before I try to sell it. It's not something that I would just do afterwards because if you walk up to a guy with a car and you say, hey, can I take a shot of your car? He's thinking, yeah, he just wants a shot of my car. He's not thinking, hey, he's going to make a poster of my car or, or whatever. So I would say that sell changes everything quite a bit. I have to agree totally with that. I mean, if you if – you if you've like spent a year customizing a car and you know, the paint job is beautiful and all this and somebody comes by and looks at it and says, can I take a picture of your car? And you let them. And then a couple of weeks later, you see your car on a billboard for some company right. <laughs> because they sold it to iStock. Uh, how are you going to feel about that? So, yeah, yeah I think. Yeah, hey, it depends really. Minute. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Derek. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I, I agree with Frederick on that. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, when it comes to selling, what really counts is the context of how you're selling these photos and where it's going to be used. If it's going to be used for an ad, well, without a, uh, a model release, uh, you open yourself up to trouble. 
if if you're at a public show and a public show isn't really a public show it's it's someone owns it um but if there are no rules in terms of being there you can sell it editorially and be fine because you know obviously when you're in a a venue like that uh, there're going to be people taking pictures and you you, you lose control of your, your sort of right to privacy, if you will, and you can sell it in an editorial way and feel relatively safe. Or as an art piece, you can sell it. But the minute you put it into an advertising context, that's when you're going to get into trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And, all right, uh, and we just want to emphasize that these are all gray areas that are subject <laughs> to discussion. Exactly. And Absolutely. we are not lawyers, nor do we play them on podcasts <laughs> or television. <laughs> Although our mothers wish we were lawyers. I'm sure. <laughs> so, you know, just to, to, to wrap it up for Paul, I would say, Paul, I probably wouldn't, uh, you know, do that unless uh, I got agreement beforehand. Yeah. Good, and good uh, property release, something like that. Yeah. Something in writing, for sure. Question number three from Scott Ryan goes to Mr. Ron Brinkman. You want to take that one? You bet. Scott says, uh, processing and photo management tools such as Lightroom, Aperture, and CS5 are incredibly expensive. Using open source utilities such as GIMP and Digicam might be a good financial fit, especially for those of us who are not using photography as a source of income. These utilities may not be as user-friendly as their closed-source counterparts, but the money saved could be spent on equipment and or photo expeditions. What are your thoughts on open source photo utilities? I, I think I think you're exactly right that uh, these are good alternatives. I haven't played a whole lot with many of them. I've used GIMP a few times. You know, it's the same thing of you're you're making some kind of trade offs. GIMP is not as powerful as Photoshop, but it does a whole lot of what it is, what Photoshop does, and it does it well. Um, you know, even even on the sort of photo management side of things. Tools like Picasa, for instance, uh, you know, free download from from Google, uh, and has a lot of really good photo organizing tools. I think it's it's like anything where, where when you're getting started, you know, you need to make a decision for where you're going to spend your money, uh, and also sort of what your passion level is for this kind of stuff. So, you know, we all have hobbies that are more or less expensive, and if you're not, if you are a hobbyist photographer, and that's how I would classify myself, definitely. Um, you just need to make these decisions on where you're going to spend your money, like you say. And uh, it's true. If you're not bringing in income, you can't make a, a hard and fast sort of financial decision on it. So you just have to decide what uh, what's your, your level of uh, pain threshold for spending money on some of these tools. So uh, bottom line, though, is I, I have to say that I've played with some of these tools. And if anybody else has, they can chime in, too. But they generally do a very good job. And there's a lot of really good stuff out there for little or no money. Ron, where do you fall on the, the online photo management applications like Picnic or um, Photoshop.com and those, those sorts of um, in-the-cloud apps? Uh, if you've got a good network connection, they're probably decent. Uh, that's probably a pretty big caveat for a lot of people. You know, if you're dealing with uh, modern photos, the images are big. And it takes a while to get them up there. And then if you want to get them back down on your computer, it's going to take a while to get back. So it's probably good... And you'd have to sort of ask yourself what specifically you want to do with it. But if there's a couple of images you want to do some fairly involved work on and, and one of the online services does what it needs, then I could see it making sense. But I suspect that wide adoption of that is going to have to wait until bandwidth is a little bit more universally available. Because you just don't want to wait you know, a minute or so for your image to get up there and back down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Steve, would you, as a as a professional photojournalist, would you ever consider using a cloud-based solution for your image manipulation and management? 
Um, no, not really. And I, I do think, Scott, that you're exaggerating a little when you sort of lump Lightroom Aperture and CS5 and say they're incredibly expensive. I certainly know that money is an issue for a lot of us uh, these days. And uh, But I think, you know, Aperture, I believe, is about $200. Lightroom is 300 I think. And CS5, mm-hmm. of course, is maybe incredibly expensive. Um, <laughs> but the investment the investment in, 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 you know, a Lightroom and an Aperture is sort of a an archive long career long growth because you'll be cataloging your work it'll be protecting your work it'll be getting it out there it just does so much that uh, depending where you want to go with it i think ron's right if you if you just don't need all that or if you're not interested in in going deeper and further into it um then then it may not be necessary to uh, go to the traditional um for sale photos mat- photo processing softwares but uh uh, I think it's for anyone, and if he's asking the question and he's a listener, sounds like he's maybe a little more committed to photography. It, it makes sense to to you know get into um, you know one of I, I'm I'm an advocate of of you know obviously I'm I'm on full disclosure with Aperture on the advisory board, but an Aperture or a Lightroom because it's going to catalog your your entire work going forward. So ten years from now, after you've got a million images, you'll be able to find it quickly and. And and uh, it's it's it, the sooner you get in, I think, the better. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Thanks for disclosing that, Steve. So, uh, uh, <laughs> Twip listeners, if you have a feature request for Aperture, send it to Steve Sign. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'm sure. I'm 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 with you. There you go. I mean, uh, you know, in all seriousness, on the the cost side of these things, when you look at three hundred, two hundred dollars Lightroom Aperture, whichever one you decide to go with, spread over the life of the time that you're going to be using this software and how much easier it's going to make your life and how much better they're going to make your images you or 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 look it's uh it's pennies you know when you when you spread three hundred dollars over i don't know three years you know it's it's nothing so i you know that that cost even up front is is when you look at it from that perspective it's it's relatively minuscule and you're right steve cs5 is up there so if you're going to be if you need all that power typically the people that need the cs5 suite are probably not going to be paying for it out of their own pockets you know they'll be with companies or or design firms that can afford to just upgrade them all holistically but you know on the lightroom aperture side all of us normal folk you know i think just pick one and go with it and you know save for another three weeks if you can't afford the 300 bills and and jump in do you, do you agree with that, Derek, or, or should people go with the free stuff? Well, it depends on their situation, obviously, but I'm a big fan of both Lightroom and Aperture. I like them both a lot, and I think um, they do make you more efficient. And I think uh, then there's an enjoyable factor. Uh, mm-hmm. Both Apple and Adobe have spent a lot of time working on their user interfaces. And, I mean, it's just a pleasure to to work on an image in the develop module in Lightroom or to use a heads-up display in Aperture. So, for me personally, uh, you know, I think that over the long haul, these are good investments. And uh, I think especially when you're getting into photography, to get in and, and to be organized from the get-go uh, I, that's not such a bad thing. So I, I kind of like them myself. I, I think they're good tools. Uh, and and I, I agree. And I didn't want to give the impression that uh, I was saying, you know, don't bother buying either of these these tools because I, mm-hmm. I totally agree that they are, you know, for me, they're absolutely worth it. <clears throat> and, and I think, you know, if you're coming at photography from the perspective of you had to really, really stretch to buy a, uh, you know, $300, $400 entry-level camera and that's about all you could do for a while, then... Yeah, aperture is a, and even aperture at two hundred bucks is is a big percentage of that. Uh, but 
you know, if you're in the realm of buying, you know, spending a few thousand dollars or even a thousand dollars on a system, then the percentage of money that you're putting in towards something like an Aperture or a Lightroom is not that significant out of the whole package. And, you know, what's your time worth? Because that's the big, the other big trade-off you're making here is the amount of time you can save going through all the photos you're going to shoot. Uh, the faster you can get through those in an efficient and organized fashion, then the faster you're going to be able to get back out and shoot some more stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. All right, since we're already on you, uh, Ron, let's let's jump into the uh, the picks of the week and jump into your pick of the week. Okay, mine is uh, mine is definitely for the hackers uh, in the sense that, um, well, let me take a step back. So so when you're shooting, we've seen a lot of good time-lapse photography done uh, where you set your, your SLR up and you have it shoot off a frame every minute or something like that. Uh, the really good time-lapse stuff you'll notice that the camera is actually moving. It's not just stuck on a tripod. It's actually slowly moving. Uh, this is a technology called motion control or MOCO, something that we used in the film industry for years and years when we're shooting miniatures and that sort of thing. But uh, it's typically been a very expensive sort of a proposition to have a rig that can slowly move a camera while it's shooting time lapse and give you this nice arcing sort of feel or some, you know, some sort of camera movement. Uh, and that's just sort of as a side note, that's something that people moving from uh, shooting stills to shooting video need to learn is that by, being, by moving your camera, you get a much better sense of depth than what's going on in the scene. Uh, so if you're shooting motion control, you want that. So the website I'm going to recommend this is called openmoco.org. It's just O-P-E-N-M-O-C-O.org. And it's just a community for people that want to build their own motion control rigs. And it's surprisingly easy to do this. You can get a lot of off-the-shelf parts and put something together that would let you do this motion control photography uh, and set it up so that the camera is slowly moving across the scene at the same time. Much better look. Uh, just go there, check it out. And if you're at all, like I said, sort of a hacker, builder, maker kind of uh, persuasion, you can uh, look through there and get a lot of good ideas for building your own rigs. And I, For me, this is sort of a, in, in the hopes that more of these rigs will get built and the cost will come down. Very cool. Awesome. And more, more projects to put on the front of that arc for you, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Steve, what's, uh, what's your pick? What's your pick of the week? Uh, well, my pick of the week, you know, as I, I usually scan my room and look for stuff that I can use. And, and this was what I was looking for last week, these sticky filters, because I know a lot of us are into sort of speed light, small camera, small flash photography. And what I like about these things is, you know, they've got all the correction ones for tungsten and fluorescence and open shade. And basically, uh, it is what it says it is, which is a sticky filter. You just peel it off. The uh, <laughs> If you had nails, you would just <laughs> peel it off the, the little cardboard thing and you stick it on the front of the flash and boom, you're ready to go. Oh, and cool. of course, most uh, camera manufacturers make these things. Nothing is as easy as that. And you just, you know, after you're done, you take it off, you stick it back on the card. They say it'll work, you know, hundreds of times, thousands of times over, and you put it back in the wallet. It's just the fastest um, way to, to put a, a color correction filter over your uh, flash that I've found thus far. So that's why I like it. Where did you get sticky that from, filters, Steve? Uh, stickyfilters.com is the website. Okay. And it's, uh, I believe it's about, it's, they're not cheap, but I mean, you'll have this for a long time. It's, I think it's about 50 bucks for a set. Uh, they even have it at B&H Photo now. So uh, uh, I, think, I think it's a good thing. All right. Stickyfilters.com. All right. I'm on it. And uh, Mr. Derek Story, what is your pick of the week? 
Well, this week I'm I'm going to go with uh, you know, Frederick. We did the show on the iPad for photographers back mm-hmm. before it came out, and uh, I actually end up really liking this device more than I even thought I would. And one of the reasons why I like it so much is uh, the iPad uh, connection kit here. The oh, you the, got uh, it. camera connection kit. This thing is so cool, and uh, basically just allows me to two little pieces. Uh, and uh, just plug it into the dock connector on the iPad. I can put an SD card in there, or I have a USB port to plug in a memory card reader or whatever. So now, you know, like you were talking earlier about, you know, the convenience of the iPhone, taking the shot, and then just uploading it. This kind of moves that to just a little bit bigger scale. And then on top of that, uh, I, I've been plugging USB uh, microphones in there and using the recording software and can record CD quality. So it's really... Camera connection kit and audio connection kit. Uh, it just it just has changed the device for me and uh, has made it more useful. Have you recorded any episodes of the Digital Story uh, on your iPad yet? You know, it's funny. Uh, I was going to do this week's episode because I was writing. You know, the the one that's coming out on Tuesday. It's called the Nimble Photographer, and it's it's sort of about all this stuff. And I was going to do it, and uh, then I decided not to uh, at the last minute, but. I think I will end up, especially when I'm traveling, I will end up um, doing that because I've already worked out the whole workflow, uh, including uploading and everything, and uh, it sounded really good. So, yeah, I probably will be doing that when I'm traveling. Wow. So recording, editing, and uploading you can do directly from, from the device? Yes. And so you can do that with both your photos and your audio. Uh, there's enough tools now, and it, it works out well. And so just these two little plugs uh, sort of changed everything. And they're, they're 29 bucks for the kit. And, uh, you know, they might as well be uh, a gold as far as I'm concerned. They really have uh, changed my workflow a lot. If you could get them. I went to three Apple stores so far. I can't find them. Yeah. I, gotta, I guess uh, yeah. buckle down and order them. I, I had to, that's what I did. I, Aren't you too distracted watching movies, reading books, surfing the web to do actual work on the iPad? Well, no, you know, I, I'm so glad you brought that up, Steve, because, you know, <laughs> we keep hearing this over and over that the iPad is, a, a, you know, for consuming stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's fine. I mean, I love the Netflix app and the ABC uh, app. I think those are both, you know, fabulous. But I, I use it most of the time for creating content. So for me... Um, I'm, I'm able to uh, resist the urge to just watch movies endlessly and actually get my work done with it. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, that's, so you, did you say you're writing a blog post on that or doing a podcast? Or, or? Uh, yeah, uh, on uh, the Tuesday uh, podcast for Digital Stories called uh, The Nimble Photographer. So it's, gonna, it's going to uh, outline this whole workflow, yeah. Oh, okay. So that's tomorrow. You know, you realize yeah, that, right? Yeah, uh, five and a half pounds <laughs> for the entire kit. <laughs> okay awesome all right thanks derek and uh my pick of the week is is from a guest that we had on the show a couple of um, months ago i think it was trey radcliffe came on and showed um this technique of using a relatively inexpensive camera with a high speed mode i think it was an olympus or something like that no, it was a casio. It was a casio. It's a casio yeah so he he uh, shot some high speed photography um and then slowed it down so that it just sort of had this sort of weird slow motion yet real time effect. Well, he's done some more on that and uh, posted a really cool video on his website and a tutorial on how he did that with a list of all the gear and all that magic stuff. So head over there and check it out. Um, he's at stuckincustoms.com, stuckincustoms.com. That's uh, 
that's his website. It's actually the, his website is crazy. He's got all kinds of cool stuff over there. So be sure to check that out. All right, guys, we're at the we're at the end of the show. Finally, um, what's um, Derek? Well, we'll start with you. Where can folks go to find out more about you? Uh, you can find out everything about me at thedigitalstory.com. Excellent. Ron Brinkman, where are you online? Uh, mostly these days on Twitter, Ron Brinkman. Got you. And uh, Mr. Steve Simon? Uh, well, I'm, my website stevesimonphoto.com. Twitter, I love Twitter. You guys got me going. I definitely <laughs> have a problem. Although I'm not tweeting as much as I should, but Twitter slash Steve Simon. And uh, one other little self-promotional thing. I'm going to be at the Maui Photo Festival in late August, August 25th what? to the 29th. That sounds pretty cool. I've never been to Maui, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And they've got some, some good people coming up at, wow. at that event. And where where uh, where's that online? Is it MauiPhotoFestival.com or, or can they yeah, get it from Maui, the website? MauiPhotoFestival.com. Perfect. It's in August. It's not in February, but still. But it's Maui, right? Cool. Exactly. All right, and uh, don't forget if you look if you want to follow the show itself, we're on Facebook, so we have a Facebook fan page up there on this week in photography. Just do a search for us, you'll find us, and also on our companion website at twiplog.com. That's twiplog.com. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me on my blog at frederickvan.com or on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash frederickvan. And with that, gentlemen, it is time to take that lens cap. Off.